0: Five or six years ago? I'll just count. Five years ago? Okay. We moved down. Uh, We were youth pastoring up in Wisconsin for about six years. And then we moved down here to help ANC get off the ground. They were about a half-year-old, I think, at that time. And and, uh, helped uh, along with some great people, Andy and Renee, helped run the youth ministry for a couple years up until about last summer. And when uh, we got blessed with two foster babies and life got a little crazy, a little crazy. And uh, so it's been a journey, it's been fun Up until last week wasn't so much fun, I guess we, As we were coming to church last week Our two-year-old foster boy decided to transform Magically into a volcano of vomit Erupting It's probably the, the best word picture I can give you Just to gross you out here this morning um, He was covered in And the kid looked like he had just gone through the mud run The Tough Mudder I mean, he was just, It was nasty, it was awesome but disgusting at the same time. Um, so, anyhow, that's us. That's a little bit about us. Today, we're going to be jumping into 1 John. We've been covering uh, the last two weeks. Matthew set us up beautifully over the last two weeks, the first chapter of 1 John. Today, we're going to be jumping into chapter 2 of 1 John. But before we dive in, just I think it would benefit us to recap just a little bit about some of the main themes and ideas that we've covered so far. Uh, The main one being in the introduction of the letter. The author writes about his purpose for writing the letter. And he talks about he, she, they talk about um, this testimony. They have seen and they've heard. And what they're referring to is this aeon zoe. And Matthew talked to us about the terms for life in the Greek zoe versus psyche uh, a couple of weeks ago. And so I won't rehash all of that. But suffice it to say... Eternal life is what he was referring to. And the reason he's writing to, writing this letter to the first church is uh, to remind us about this eternal life that we should be experiencing here now. And I know immediately, we as Westerners, 21st century Americans, uh, thousands of years removed from the author, the writing, and who the audience was that wrote, was, this was written to, immediately we have a problem when we hear the term eternal life. Right, And that problem uh, comes in many different forms, or a couple of different problems. But probably the main one that I think that we have an issue with is when we think eternal life, we tend to think in terms of afterlife. We tend to think in terms of heaven when you die. Uh, we tend to think in terms of eternity. Things, something that takes place after this life, life after death kind of thing. And it very well may include that. But the problem is that for the writer, the author here, and for Jesus, for that matter, when they taught about eternal life, they weren't speaking about, most of the time, things that take place out of the They were talking about things that take place here and now. Something that we can experience right here, right now in this life. Uh, Jesus called it abundant life. Paul in Colossians calls it resurrection life. Jesus said, uh, he used several different analogies for it. Uh, things like rivers of living water flowing from you. All to describe this life this aeon zoe, this eternal life that we should be experiencing here in this life, right here, right now. And we don't have to wait for till after we die, but when we enter into the kingdom of God here in this life, when we make God the king of our lives and submit to his rule and his reign in our lives, we begin to experience his life. We get, begin to experience and taste a little bit of what he originally intended for us before sending it to, into, into the world. Okay, so with that thought in mind, this is a fresh reminder. Let's jump in. 1 John chapter 2 verse 3 is where we're going to start today. And the author says this, here's how we can be sure that we know God in the right way. Keep His commandments. Okay, so let's pause right there. I think there's some things we can unpack <clears throat> right off the bat here. First, the author is going to bring in these two new terms, okay? Um, actually, a couple of new terms, but one is orthodoxy versus orthopraxy. Anyone ever heard the word orthodox before? A couple of you. What does orthodox mean? Anybody know what it refers to? Orthodoxy. Okay, ortho meaning correct. You go to the orthodontist, they correct your teeth, right? Orthodoxy means correct thinking or beliefs or doctrine. Okay, so orthodoxy corrects thinking. And for the author here, he's what he's telling us is that you cannot separate your orthodoxy and we've already seen him insert himself into some of the debates that were going on uh, in the first chapter amongst the church about things like the nature of Jesus. Was he fully divine? Was he fully human? Was he both? Did he go back and forth? And he's already inserted himself into some of those debates and said, here's the truth. Here's the correct way of thinking about that. Okay. And then there's this word orthopraxy that he's bringing up. Okay? Orthodoxy is correct thinking. Orthopraxy, correct living. Correct practices. Correct... Uh, behaviors okay actions and for the author and for jesus for that matter these two things orthodoxy and orthopraxy correct thinking and correct actions were very much entwined you could not separate them you could not separate them they went hand in hand with each other jesus talked about this a lot especially with the pharisees okay he talked about he called them hypocrites people who say one thing did another right whitewashed tombs looked good on the outside dead and decaying on the inside those kind of things so orthodoxy orthopraxy what the author is telling us here is, here's how we can be sure that we know God in the right way. Our correct th- way of thinking about God. If we, we can know that we have the correct, the orthodox theology, if you will, is by our orthopraxy. It says, keep his commandments. The keep, word keep there, actually I like better translated as guard. Guard his commandments. And now, the other interesting thing about this opening here is commandments. Up until now, this is a new term that he hasn't brought up in this letter. Okay, and so anytime that happens in First John, you need to refer back to the Gospel of John, right? Because First John is simply commentary on the Gospel of John. So we'll do that here in just a second. But I think just like the term eternal life presents problems for us as Westerners, people who are thousands of years removed from the context and the audience, the word commandments, I think, presents a few issues for us as well. Because in our 21st century, at least... I think most of us, uh, we, we tend to think, when we hear the word commandments, we tend to think of, what, the Ten Commandments? It's a plaque hanging on Grandma's wall, right? We tend to think of Moses, maybe, uh, on Mount Sinai, or if you're like me, and uh, you tend to think in terms of movies. Maybe it's my youth pastor brain, I don't know. You tend to think of, what is that movie? The History of the World, Part 1, Mel Brooks. He comes down, Moses on the mountain with the three tablets. These are the 15, as he drops one. Ten Commandments, right? <clears throat> Sorry, my youth pastor brain. I tend to think in terms of movie scenes. Um, but Commandments. Typically, when we think of the Commandments, even the Ten Commandments, we think of these incredibly high standards, this, this to-do list that was so far, the bar was set way up here that we, just had, we had to jump to reach it and pull ourselves up to, to measure up to it. And it became that. The truth is the law became that. But if we were to look back into the context of which the law was given, the Israelites who were just coming out of slavery from Egypt, and we were to look at it through their lens, it really wasn't meant to be this incredibly high standard, this this thing that added so much pressure and weight on us. But it was meant to be a breath of fresh air. Think about it in their context. They're coming out of slavery, and, and every, let's take for instance the first four commandments of the Ten Commandments. All have to do with our relationship with God, how we relate with God, right? Things like, no other gods before me, no idols, that kind of stuff, right? Well, it's not because God's a snob and he doesn't want to invite anyone else to the party, right? It's because he was trying to make life simpler, more simple for the Israelites. Okay, if you look at them, all the people groups who were surrounded the Israelites had all kinds of gods. Multi-gods that they had to satisfy, they had to sacrifice to, that they had to keep happy. Right? Rain and sun and all these kinds of things. That they, and it became incredibly cumbersome. And it was just incredibly complex. Right? And so when God says, listen, forget all that other gods. Forget all the idols. Just one God. Worship the one true God. For the Israelites, it was like, yes, yes, right? Incredibly freeing, breath of fresh air, liberating, right? And then the last six of the Ten Commandments all have to do with how we relate to each other, our relationship with each other, how we love each other, how we interact with each other, and it's things like, don't steal each other's wives, right? Don't lie to one another, don't be jealous of each other, right? Right? It's not this incredibly high standard bar, right? It's actually quite the opposite. It's almost as if God set the bar so low and said, this is like the lowest level of what it even means to be human. And to, to go below this, it's like you are crawling on your belly to go beneath this. Right? And what the commandments were meant to do, and we know originally they became more uh, complex and people... and teachers and Pharisees added things to them, and they became the opposite of what they were supposed to be. But they were meant to be a signpost. They were meant to be a glimpse of this aeon zoe. They were meant to be a glimpse of what this life that God intended for us to live should look like. That's what the intention of them was. And then Jesus comes on the scene, right, and clarifies again in the Sermon on the Mount, you've heard it said this, but I tell you the truth is this. He clarifies all the laws again and basically boils it down to what? Love God and love each other. Right? Some, the summation of the law and simplifies it once again for us. Okay? So, commandments. <clears throat> Let's take a look at uh, John and see what exactly, which commandment he's referring to. John chapter 13, verse 34 says this. Jesus is talking. He says, Let me give you a new command. Love one another in the same way I have loved you and you love one another. This is how everyone will recognize that you are my disciples when they see the love you have for each other. John 15, verse 12. My command is this. Love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this to lay down one's life for one's friends. 15, verse 17. This is my command. Love each other. Okay, so the command that he's referring to obviously is the summation of the commandments love God and love each other, specifically the love each other part. And that'll become more clear as we go along here in 1 John. But let's just recap that first sentence if we were to reinterpret this. Here's how we can be sure that we know God in the right way, we right? have the correct orthodoxy. Guard your love for others, essentially, is what Keep his commandments. Guard your love for others. Guard against that. Protect it. Verse 4, if someone claims, I know him well, but doesn't keep his commandments, he's obviously a liar. Okay, orthodoxy, separated from orthopraxy, he says, you're a liar. Okay, can't happen. His life doesn't match his words, but the one who keeps God's word is the person in whom we see God's mature love. This is the only way to be sure that we're in God. Anyone who claims to be intimate with God ought to know, ought to live the same kind of life. Jesus lived, okay? Let's pause there because I think there's a couple interesting things there. The word mature, okay? And the very last line, anyone who claims to be intimate with God ought to live the same kind of life Jesus lived. Now, what he's referring to is being followers, being disciples, okay? I like the word student, being a student of Jesus, letting Jesus be our teacher, how to live this aeon zoe, how to live this eternal life right here and right now, okay? In other words, how to live the way of the heavens, okay? <clears throat> and what the author's telling us here is not that we should be perfect. Okay, he's not saying that you need to be sinless and perfect and and live exactly the way Jesus did. This word mature here that he says is uh, is very interesting. It's actually in the Greek, the word teleos. Let me hear you say teleos. Teleos, okay. Teleos is the word that, that is translated here as mature, and what it actually means is it refers to this idea of completeness, being complete, lacking nothing, okay? And I think the best way to de- describe this is LeBron James, okay? <laughs> LeBron James. Right? And I know Spurs fans, we, we, we're playing them tonight. We, I'm not a Spurs fan, but uh, you're playing them tonight and, and I'm rooting against LeBron, right? But I think we'd probably agree, most of us in this room anyway, that LeBron's a pretty complete player, isn't he? I mean, he's not lacking anything in his game. He's got the whole package. He's got all the tools. Does that mean he's perfect? No. Does that mean he makes every single shot? He makes all the right decisions? No. But he's the complete player. He's probably the best there is in the league, right? He's pretty complete, right? That's this idea of teleos. Not perfection, necessarily. Sometimes it's translated as perfection, but in this context... It's, it's not referring to perfection, that we should be perfect. It's referring to this idea of being complete. Okay? <clears throat> being a complete person. Okay, so, verse 7. Let's pick up there. My dear friends, I'm not writing anything new to you here. This is the oldest commandment in the book. And you've known it from day one. It's always been implicit in the message you've heard. On the other hand, perhaps it is new. Freshly minted. As it is in both Christ and you, the darkness on its way out, the true light already blazing. Anyone who claims to live in God's light and hates a brother or sister is still in the dark. It's the person who loves brother and sister, who dwells in God's light, who doesn't block the light from others. But whoever hates is still in the dark, stumbles around in the dark, doesn't know which end is up, blinded by the darkness. To which we all naturally think of Yoda. Right? Don't we? Yeah. I see some head nodding. Yeah. You're with me. You're, you're like me. You think in terms of movies. Right? Yoda. Such a wise little green dude. Andy. Yes, you did. You thought about it. <clears throat> Fear leads to hate. Hate leads to the dark side. Right? Kind of deal. Um, let's take a look. So, so the author is bringing up this love versus hate. And last week, Matthew talked about this analogy that he brings in about light versus dark and darkness being the absence of. Of light, So if we equate that here, hate is simply the absence of love, right? Essentially is what the author is saying here. So let's take a look at what Jesus has to say in a couple of places about this love versus hate deal. Luke chapter 6, Jesus says this. But to you who are listening, I say love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat. Now, when I was a kid, or a teenager growing up in church, and anytime I'd heard this verse right here preached about, it was always something in the back of my mind that just kind of didn't really set right in me. It was kind of like, uh sure, it sounds good, but it's a little impractical. Am I right? Anybody else feel that way? It was it was kind of like, really, turn the other cheek, and what am I supposed to do? Let somebody just beat the snot out of me? Right? In your name? What good does that do? Right? I always had that kind of thought going on in my head. And then a couple of years ago, when we were pastoring up in Wisconsin, I had a real experience with hate. And I I had this experience with another couple in our church. And probably the time of my life where I came the closest to actually having a complete absence of love in my heart for somebody. Completely hating somebody. And it, it had to do with this other couple in our church, and they wanted us gone. They wanted us out, and they were willing to backstab, manipulate behind the scenes with our senior pastors, and and uh, and uh, spread rumors and all kinds of things. That was incredibly hurtful. And my wife and I we were we were hurt deeply. We spent nights crying, praying, and. We, that hurt turns to anger, right? You guys know where I'm at. We've all been hurt. And we've all been angry. And I remember coming across the scripture. Love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. And I thought to myself, okay. I'm going to take this literally. I'm going to put this to the test. I'm going to try this out. And so we started to do things like We'd be out at Olive Garden, and we knew their favorite dessert was the black tie moose cake, right? Anybody else like the black tie moose cake, right? Um, you just like disagreeing with everything I say, Andy. All right, uh, but so we would do little things where we'd pick up a dessert and drop it off on the doorstep. Just do little things to try and do good for these people, right? And, but I'll be honest, the, the line that really stuck me, that really changed me, was the last line. He says, pray for those who mistreat you. And when I got past the point of praying, okay, God, I pray that you would set this situation right and and prove them wrong and make them look stupid, right? (laughs) Smite them. Those type of prayers, you know, justify me type prayers. And, And when I got past those and I started to genuinely and honestly open up my heart before God and say, God, bless them. Bless their family with health. Bless their ministry. Let it thrive. And I began to open up my heart and began to genuinely pour out my heart to God on behalf of them. You know what it did? It made it almost impossible for me to hate. To hate them. And I realized something at that moment. That Jesus wasn't telling us to love our enemies for their sake. He was telling that to us for our sake. That forgiveness really had nothing to do with the other person. The other person apologizing. Forgiveness has to do with you and your own heart. And so Jesus is telling us, love your enemies. Do good to those who curse you. Not so that it will change them or not so they'll start to like you. He's telling you for your own sake. So when you begin to pray for somebody, it's impossible to hate them. Check this out. In Matthew chapter 5 he says this. You're familiar with the command of the ancients. Do not murder. I'm telling you that anyone who is so much as angry with a brother or sister is guilty of murder. Carelessly call a brother idiots and you might just find yourself hauled off into court. Thoughtlessly yell stupid a sister and you are at the brink of hell. Simple moral fact is that wounds kill. And here's what, I, what dawned on me. Okay? Is that just as we can, and Jesus is inviting us to, we can let him teach us how to live this aeon zoe, this eternal life, the way of the heavens, the life that we were meant to live originally. Just as we can choose to live in that kind of life, we can choose the opposite. We can choose to live in hell. And if you've ever held on to grudges and had unforgiveness in your heart, that's basically what it is, isn't it? You're torturing yourself. You're the one who stays up night thinking about it, replaying it in your mind. You're the one who stays up fantasizing about what you could have said or what could have happened or what should happen. It doesn't affect the other person. It affects you. You're the one who's choosing to live in hell. Jesus is saying, you're on the brink of hell. Choose forgiveness for your own sake. Choose the way of the heavens. Choose love. Choose Aeon Zoe for your own sake, not for their sake. One of my mentors used to say it like this Bitterness is the poison that you drink, hoping the other person will die. Bitterness is the poison that you drink, hoping the other person will die. It doesn't make any sense, does it? Unforgiveness, holding on to grudges, it just doesn't make sense. And the author in 1 John is reminding us that this is no place in the aeons only life. Those things belong to the darkness. They belong to the old way of life. Right? And what the author is doing is he's reminding us that we can practice. We get to practice love here in this life. We get to practice this eternal life right here, right now. And that's both good and bad, <laughs> I think. It's good because it's exciting. Yes, I get to experience this life that God originally meant for me to live, but uh oh, to practice forgiving somebody means that I have to be around people that I find difficult to love. Right? But I have to be around and be listening to the Spirit where He's trying to work. And those are those situations those people that you find annoy the crap out of you, right? Those kind of people. That's where the Spirit wants to work in our lives because Jesus is trying to teach us in those moments how, what the life of aeons Zoe, eternal life really looks like. Make sense? So this is how we know. We can be sure that we know God in the right way. By guarding our love brothers. And this is how the world will know that we are his students. Is by guarding our love brothers. It. Because it's really in the world of darkness, it gets a back, backdrop of hate. The love stands out, isn't it? love stands out. But we have to be willing. We have to be willing to let him teach us. That means being around people that we find difficult to love. Maybe even people that deliberately hurt you. They do it intentionally. We have to be willing to let him teach you Aon Zoe, the way of the heavens. Let's pray.